0: Welcome, Terry Cook, to the uh, Bibliophile. Glad to be here, Nigel. Just want to recount a story of a visit to the National Archives several months ago that I I made. Showed up, asked the receptionist if there are any exhibitions that I could see, and she told me that there hadn't been any library and archives for the past two years, which in itself was upsetting. This, then, combined with the fact that the federal budget came down and cuts something in the neighborhood of 10% of the budget of the Library and Archives Canada. But The point I'm slowly getting to is that in the objections to the way the Library and Archives has been treated in the past number of years, these cuts, the argument that history is important has been made frequently, and I'd like to explore why it's so important. Well, Nigel, you
1: touch on a a bunch of themes there uh, explicitly and implicitly, which I think are really worth addressing. One is the exhibitions. I too regret the loss of the exhibition space and the exhibition as a function. I guess I should make clear to your listeners that I left Library and Archives Canada in 1998, although I have friends and contacts there, I don't speak for them, I have no authority to do so. I certainly have a continuing love and passion for the place for the years I spent there, both as a researcher and as a uh, staff member. That said, the 395 Wellington headquarters of Library and Archives Canada had three major exhibition rooms, and they were always full with major, you know, two, three hundred item exhibitions of originals on the wall. Uh, thematic exhibitions uh, by photographer, by artist, by time period. But the place was also richly decorated. The photography collection had what they called ause, which are little 25,30 item shows which are down one corridor. There were a series of oil paintings in the main lobby. Outside the reference rooms for the library on the second floor and the archives on the third floor, there were small exhibitions. The place lived with a passion for the original record or the original book for the library on display. Two of the three rooms about 10 years ago were closed from exhibitions and turned into meeting rooms for staff. They have tables and chairs where conferences are held. And the third one, which is the last to go, closed two or three years ago. The paintings have disappeared from the lobby. It's It's dead. dead. It's become a dead building in that sense, although the reference and reading room activities still occur on the second and third floor, and the rest is basically storage or, or some office areas. It brings to the fore, what do we do with the material record, the actual book in a digital age. Because Library and Archives Canada does not stop doing exhibitions, they do them online. So one can see the painting, the photograph, the drawing, the map online. You can click on its caption and find out uh, something about its context and history, perhaps more than you would have from the captions on the wall. The argument being that maybe 10, 20,000 people might see the exhibition in Ottawa, if it were a very popular one, if it were up for six months, online uh, you may reach millions. And it's permanently online, it doesn't come down and disappear back into the stacks and is replaced by another one, you just have five online and then you have six, and then you have seven, it's a cumulative thing. And Canadians, and indeed anyone in the world, can have access to that. But what then is it they're having access to? What does that mean for history? What is the appeal uh, of the document to history and heritage? I recounted a a story to you of of First Nations leaders coming to Ottawa to uh, negotiate with the federal government, and they wanted to see the original Indian treaties, which are stored at Library and Archives Canada for their ancestors' marks on them. And they wanted to have a sweetgrass ceremony to draw uh, spiritual inspiration from that original document. Now, those Indian treaties, as you're well aware, have been reprinted in scores of books. They're microfilmed, and the microfilm being distributed by the archives 30 years ago. They're now digitized. They're everywhere, but their spiritual materiality, the, the essence of what they are as objects, is something that spoke to them. And it has been suggested that that is something that researchers feel when they go through original records. Researchers and, and the general public. And the general public. you know, and, anyway. Anyone who, who comes to see those exhibitions, only a, a small percentage, you're quite right, would yeah. be researchers per se. That's always been an issue of archives. If everyone saw the most famous letters by Johnny McDonald, they would have been you know worn to shreds and sawdust long ago. So paper copies were made and then microfilm copies, and you can only see the originals of some rare treasures either behind glass in an exhibition or through a paper or a microfilm and now a digital surrogate and so archives always balance this access and accessibility versus preservation and conservation and the two often are cross purposes although we try our best to make them work together.
0: Okay so We've identified a sense of mystery, a sense of awe in being in the presence of these books or maps or documents that that may have been touched or signed by, by important historical figures. What about the fact that it's proof of certain events having taken place. Mm
1: -hmm. The original document serves as better evidence because of the clues that it contains in terms of watermark, uh, ages of ink and paper, types of mailing conventions that were employed. Uh, They didn't have envelopes initially so the document would be folded up and addressed on the back side of it and sealed together with seals. One loses that or almost all of it in a digital format or a microfilm format. So that sense of the trustworthiness of the document as evidence for history is always more difficult as you get one removed from it in microfilm or sometimes two removed, a digital scan of the microfilm of the original.
0: The fact that original source documents can't be changed without people knowing about it or Mm -hmm. erased, would you say that's another... That's very true,
1: and one of the deep concerns is that every digital copy becomes a second version of the document. It doesn't replace the first. And So, for example, if there's a document that's covered by the Access to Information Act, and someone applies to see it in the year 1990, and they would see a document that may have had 25% of it blacked out, in the year 2010 someone might see a version only has five percent blacked out because there is a passage of time clause things are less sensitive and the year 2030 it would be completely available so the historian who wrote her his book on the 1990 version is seeing de facto a different document than the 2010 or the 2030 version and all three are different than the original if it was a scan of an original paper document. Now if it was a born digital document actually made on a computer and never in paper format, then same same issue. The difference, you're quite right, is that you don't want just one document, you want all three of those are treated as three separate records but mm. interlinked. Three separate originals. Yes, and they would be originals because yeah. each one is different. In fact, as you know in in bringing up a computer record on your screen. If you have to hit the space bar, which interjects one new character, and you try to close it, it will ask you, do you want to save it? Because the computer recognizes one single character change, even an invisible one, and it makes it a different document. So we would hope and try to encourage the Margaret Atwoods of the world when creating a novel where she used to print it out from her manual typewriter and write all over it to make her second draft and write all over that printout to make a third draft, that she would do that now but save those versions as her archives. Um, and so when she sends it out to five or six friends and they send it back with whatever kind of word-tracking software they're using to make comments on the document, that uh, each of those versions would survive. If they do, with appropriate metadata, which is what we call evidence about the document or the context, then you could actually have a much richer archive mm. than you would have now. A real education on the process of writing. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but the big word in that sentence I just said was if. If they do this. But, of course, the overwhelming majority of people, including myself, when I bring up draft three, I just overwrite draft one and two because I don't think my stuff is probably of archival (laughs) value. But I think we have to make it valuable because if Margaret Atwood gave us the typescript of her novel as it was virtually published, it would be much less valuable than if she gives us those eight versions that were previously hand-typed, her red pens and other people's pens all over it. Well, if in the digital world we say, if you give us your records in this way as seven or eight interlinked drafts with this evolution you know your tax credit or the value of your donation uh, to the crown which most archival acquisitions get will be considerably more than if you don't Mm -hmm. and so gradually there will become a digital economics which i think will favor evidence nevertheless Mm -hmm. there is something to be said about margaret atwood's I'm sorry to pick on her, her handwriting on a typescript as opposed to the comments box and her okaying or commenting back in the comments box. But I guess they said the same thing when typewriters came in in the late 19th yeah. century. Where have all the lovely handwritten books gone? And indeed, they said it when books came in in the 1500s in a wide way. Where have we lost the medieval manuscripts of their beautiful illuminations?
0: Well, the fact is that we've got them. That's why we need an archive. Yep. So that we can see them because... Yeah, they are disappearing. And so our,
1: I guess, dual mandate in, in archives is to ensure that the digital world respects that kind of creation process and preserves it, and then that we can actually preserve it so that in another 500 years, when digital will seem as old-fashioned, perhaps as medieval codexes, that uh, these things are still readable and logical. Someone did an uh, analysis once that, that the the more durable... And difficult the original recording material. The longer it lasts, uh, stone tablets mm-hmm. last mm-hmm. five thousand years. P- papyrus uh, is a thousand years. Sheepskin or parchment is from the Middle Ages, still going strong. And non-chemical, non-acidic rag paper, uh, three four hundred years. But chemical paper, even in books, brittle after fifty. Cheap paper used in photocopiers
0: dried out after 10 and crumbling. Well, you also mentioned the actual scanning of uh, the digitization and what CDs. I mean, they've got seven or eight years, perhaps. Exactly. All of us have
1: had hard drive failure or memory stick failures, and and so there's all kinds of preservation things that archives do of keeping multiple copies in multiple buildings of what they want to preserve. But uh, if you had a hard drive as big as a stone tablet, you could store a library of Congress on that in digital form or on on a stone tablet, you might store 30 lines if you're lucky. As the volume goes up, the durability goes down in an inverse, almost direct inverse proportion.
0: Okay. So I guess what we're saying then is that, while digitization makes sense just in terms Mm -hmm. of democratic and, and almost an efficiency point of view, the collecting and preservation of source materials. Is equally or more important? Would you say? I think so. Uh, there are those who say
1: because you can store, you know, the the Library of Congress holdings on a server the size of your table here, we can keep everything. You still will have an enormous digital haystack looking for those needles, and so archives traditionally. Uh, keep between 1, 2, outside 5% of recorded information created by major institutions, governments, universities, hospitals, businesses. Mm-hmm. And typically less than 1% of the private archive of the country. You think there's 33, 34 million Canadians, each one in their lifetime will have an archive. And yet the total volume in archives is something like 750,000 collections of all Canadians who have ever lived, which would be in the hundreds of millions cumulatively over time. So that choice of what's important, what should we be reflecting in society, has really changed for archivists, because when you were dealing with paper, especially good, durable paper, most records didn't come to an archives until the person had died or until what were then 75-year rules of access, then they became 50-year rules, then 30-year rules, and now we have access to information or privacy legislation. But the archivists had the passage of time. So historians could be writing books, political scientists, and analyzing institutions. Biographies could appear. Archivists would be on top of this material and try to collect the themes that were important as identified by that process. But no one until the 1970s could have predicted environmental history, women's history, uh, the emphasis on race, class, ethnicity, sexual orientation, which we have now. And unfortunately if the digital record, as you just said, if you don't act within five years and preferably at the moment of creation, or as archivists say, even before creation, to make sure that people like Margaret Atwood, like a government department, are programming their machines or their business processes to make sure that that metadata is there. This is my draft three that was commented on by these five friends, Mm -hmm. and then I produced draft four at this date. It's almost in conflict with being efficient, isn't it? It is, yeah, Yeah. yeah. So what we therefore have to do is rely less on the trends of history because it's not done yet, and try to understand what are the key functions and programs and activities of major institutions? What are the major sectors of human society Mm. that we need to document? Who are the key players? Well, it's easy to pick the superstars, but who's the 22-year-old poet today who may not become known until age 40 and turns into an Earl Mm. Burney? Too bad, because when we find out you are Earl Burney II at age 52, what you wrote at age 22 is
0: long gone. Unless, well, unless, maybe you
1: put it on Facebook. Yes, maybe it's picked up in an internet or, archive. Or
0: unless there's a smart collector out there who sees this talent When it's young and starts going after it. And and that's why archives really need to have specialists rather than just
1: generalists, which is one of my bugbears in life. If you have two... Sorry, that's what's happened. There's been the cutting of the specialists. My understanding is that uh, specialization is being radically downgraded at Library and Archives Canada. Uh, Other archives are much smaller, so the specialist, if you only have three people in your shop as a university archives, you're pretty much a generalist, but even there they try to specialize as much as they can. One would do university records, one private records, one maybe photos and maps. If you have in a large national archives, as you should, a couple of specialists for literature, then they would be reading the literary press. They would be going to literature conferences. Mm-hmm. They would find out who those promising poets are. Mm-hmm. They might hear from um, Margaret Atwood, who they're collecting her records already. You know, there's this wonderful new poet. Mm-hmm. It's getting in the Mayu, and mm-hmm. the same for science or engineering or any of the other specialist f- mm-hmm. fields. Sports. It's almost yeah. like
0: being a, a critic of that field and just being aware of what's going on. Nicely put. Uh, it's a literary critic
1: if it's that field or a sports critic. It's a literary tourist to pick up your perspective and that you would be traveling around the world of literature mm-hmm. uh, through conferences, newsletters, reading poetry yourself, uh, mm-hmm. being in touch with people. National archivist and the first national librarian, he had both jobs. K. Lamb said the archivist is on duty 24-7 because you run into someone at a cocktail party and you explain what you're doing and they know someone who knows someone and the next day you get a knock on your door that I've got some papers to deliver. And they and should they, love it. It's a passion
0: for yes. collecting, absolutely Wh- so. Which gets to another point, Yes, the fact that there, there are fewer and fewer of that kind of higher going on at the Library and Archives Canada. That
1: that I can't say. Certainly the, the ideal in the archival profession nationally and internationally is to have those kinds of specialists in major archives. There was a news release in the last couple of weeks from the National Archives, which was the former public record office in England, which combined with the historical manuscripts tradition to now collect both private and government records, which they haven't done before. Most archives in the world only collect the government records. And They said, although we are overwhelmingly focusing on the digital record that's being created in private sectors and in government, it is inconceivable that with our heritage, we would not keep at least four or five specialists on staff who know medieval latin and paleography because you simply cannot interpret that portion of our holdings and so yes we will make that a specialization like you might make early maps and how to read that map early mapping or early photography and you might do that for the whole analog collection but then have a program where you put your emphasis on the digital collection because virtually everything now being created is digital. Jean-Pierre Wallot, who is national archivist in Canada from the mid-80s until the the late 1990s, said that we are probably, and was a famed Canadian historian, had written 10 or 15 books by that point and hundreds of articles, said, we may have the new dark ages in which more information is ever being produced than before, which was not the case in the first dark ages, but so little will survive because we don't know how to keep the digital record alive longer than 5, 10, maybe 15 years, that in 100 or 500 years, we will know less about this period, the 1990s, than we will know about previous decades or centuries, which is a scary prospect. And so archives, to their credit, whether it's university research programs, trying to figure out what's the problem and the solutions, national archives and increasingly provincial and university archives implementing some of those solutions are trying to get on top of the digital record and how do you identify this thing how do you put the metadata around it that will make it more than just nonsense of zeros and ones and that how do you preserve something that has a shelf life of five to ten years for millennia and there are solutions and we have the answers what we don't have is the money and in some cases, the will. And so what people are doing is almost dropping the old archive, the analog archive, you know, the old photographs and maps and manuscripts, and switching resources and emphasis to the new digital archive. I think, like the Public Record Office, uh, now National Archives in England, the wise choice would be to have these separate streams. And you realize you need yeah. a Latin paleography specialist. You need someone who is a specialist in literary archives. But you also need people who are very comfortable with the digital record. And that mm-hmm. might be quite different skill sets. These people traditionally, the analog world, came from MAs and PhDs in history. Mm-hmm. These people may come with maybe an undergraduate history degree and or English degree in literature, depending on the field, but then computer science as a
0: graduate. I guess the the, the idea of being able to capture the right 1 to 5% of everything that's going on, that's central, yep. but then there's the way of doing it, which is, which is really quite different, as yes. you're suggesting. But if we get back to what's happening right now at Library and Archives Canada, it seems like the digital side of things is a priority over the source document side of things. I, I think we need to have a clarification
1: in that the born digital record is the source document. So what we were just talking about, the records that Margaret Atwood's now creating, on our computer is a born digital record and therefore it is the source document and that has to be, just as you said, identified, described and put forward. The separate issue, although related, is the original records that are in analog media, old maps and manuscripts, which are scanned and made digital. We call those made digital as opposed to born Born digital. So, the emphasis on shifting resources and expertise and institutional rewards in the archival world, not just Library and Archives Canada, to the born digital record, uh, has my support 100%.
0: Well, you don't want the dark ages. You don't want the
1: dark ages, and that's what the history of tomorrow is. Will be based on that record, or will have yeah. no no history. Yeah. Uh, who killed Canadian history? By Jack Granstein could be you know the archives who have no source documents for the digital age from the 1980s onward in a major way. The temptation on the scanning of uh, analog original source documents to make digital surrogates and then put them online so people can access them in the millions rather than having to visit Ottawa and pay for accommodation and meals and taxis and so on. Fine if you're a professor of a research grant. Fine if you live here. Mm -hmm. Not so fine for the vast majority Fine of the getting paid to do it. Exactly. Yeah. There we have a, a much more difficult issue because scanning is not perfect. Pages are missed. Pages are blurry. There's issues around the quality of the metadata that's put there. That what was an appropriate finding aid for a researcher visiting a reference room in an archives with mediation by an archivist sitting there to guide them through it Mm. and help them find the document if they were coming in for sort of a quick visit or they needed some specialized document or if they're the researcher there for three months or three years showing them how to manipulate the system. That mediation Mm. isn't online. And no substitute for it has been put online in better finding aids or better metadata. Can you give me a specific example of why that's problematic? Well, if you bring up the material online uh, and you don't know how archivists think, and archivists think in a general to specific way, and so most researchers will punch in a subject. I'm interested in Joe Black. You might get nothing on Joe Black, but the fact that Joe Black was the head of the Communist Party in Saskatchewan in the 1930s and 40s and you're interested in communism in Canada, if you didn't punch in the right subject that would show up in the file title, you wouldn't get it. A knowledgeable archivist will make that translation for you. Archivists also organize things in a level from the font. Or what used to be called the manuscript group or the record group, which is all the records created by an individual organization. If they had six or seven subdivisions, they would become souffle, and then there's series, which might be uh, souffle might be the photographs. There might be photograph albums and photograph negatives and slides, and then there may be lists of individual items. But so, if,
0: so sorry, uh, sorry to interrupt. That would it be then that the unmediated history lover who's accessing it online? just wouldn't find it and would get frustrated? They may
1: stumble onto it but unless they know how the archivists think it can follow through that same pattern from general to specific when they actually stumble on an item they won't know its context well the navigation of websites don't often take them back to the context to explain why it's there. Or things happen like Mackenzie King. They used to have a file title as Mackenzie King Correspondence 1925, Mackenzie King Correspondence 1926, Robert Borden. They took off the names and just had it Correspondence 1925, Correspondence 1926 because the series title was Mackenzie King's Correspondence. But if you don't have that series title, You just have correspondence 1926. But if you Googled correspondence 1926, you'd get 100 hits from 100 fonds that all had correspondence in 1926. So in a paper world with paper inventories, with an archivist mediating, that works. To push that online without saying, how do we need to think to use the power of search engines, to use the power of a Wikipedia, to have an entree into Archival collections. We've in effect thrown this stuff up there and hope it sticks on the digital wall. Some of it does, but some doesn't. Someone who uh, is a superb researcher was trying to find Robert Borden's diary, which is probably the second best known diary politically in Canada after Mackenzie King's, spent 35 minutes. Someone who had worked at Library and Archives Canada knew it was there and knew just kept putting in all the search terms, going through all the various fonts, eventually found it. The average researcher would hit the search screen and type in Robert Borden's diary or diary Robert Borden and not get the hit and would assume it didn't exist.
0: So again what you're saying then is that this is a big challenge. At some point I would imagine that as years go by, someone's going to figure out how to make it easy for the general public to access Robert Borden's diary.
1: Well, I think the models are there, you know, when you go to Amazon or iTunes, which I think are two of the better sites. Now they have millions of dollars of revenue to make them that way. If you're looking for uh, an old friend of mine, Elvis Presley, if you want uh, music by him, about him, books about him, Films about him, you know, those are all segregated. You don't just get 4,000 hits to Elvis Presley. Where if you put in Johnny McDonald at LAC, you'd get 4,000 hits. So, how do you distinguish that? Yeah. Now, that requires thinking anew about Mm -hmm. these digital surrogates, thinking like a member of the general public. Exactly. And in, in fairness, that is a high priority of Library and Archives Canada all that much to both develop a new strategy and new thinking for how digitization should take place. We're in a pretty new world here. You know the history of books far better than I do, but some of your listeners will know that they didn't just turn codexes into books overnight. They turned them into printed versions of codexes. It was only when someone got the idea of page numbering that allowed tables of contents, which allowed indexes. Uh, which allowed cross-references and footnotes and so that knowledge grew. And people said it was actually the numbering of the printed codexes that gave us the scientific revolution, because knowledge could become cumulative rather than one-offs. That took a century. I think mm-hmm. we're sort of in that sort of codex is now numbered with maybe tables of contents, but this is going to be an amazing world. I, I'll tell my students, I wish I were 30 years old, but know what I know now at sixty five to take advantage of this. It's going to be an incredible opening of the world's resources that will will, will take place in, in this new world when we learn how to do it right. And in fact we're in, in we're in real growing pains now. And that growing pain is evident from the reaction to many researchers or or the public to Library and Archives Canada, but not just Library and Archives Canada, because you have a finite number of resources, or indeed now cut resources, and not just in Canada and not just at the national level for archives and libraries. You have this huge new digital mandate, which you didn't have before, almost no new resources for it, So where are you going to get the resources? You're gonna take it from the analog side. So where you used to give at Library and Archives Canada a Cadillac service on the analog side, it's now maybe a Ford and might become eventually a bicycle, meaning your four Latin specialists at the National Archives, where I'm sure 100 years ago the National Archives in England had 150 Latin and paleography specialists because that was a bigger part of the collection. Percentage-wise, that part of the collection is still there, but it's a a tiny part of both researcher interests and and the holdings. So unless there are restored funds to LAC, you know, in, in sort of the next budget, or new funds to cope with the digital world, you have to find it somewhere. And... There are sort of three classic ways of doing it. One is through automation, indeed there has been savings in I just know my own work patterns in in using automated equipment rather than you know hand typewriting and, and working working smarter. The second is uh, changes in how we actually encode records, so the whole approach to metadata and finding aids and so on. Uh, and the third, unfortunately, is to, to shift resources from the analog side to the new side, and that's painful because the vast majority of researchers at this stage do not work in born digital records because by definition historians don't tend to be interested in the last 10, 15, 20 years. It's considerably further back.
0: I'm interested in, in having a deeply layered conversation, but I'm also interested in uh, having a, a, a conversation for someone who, who loves books, loves history, and is upset by the cuts that are going on. And so this would give them something to call up their MP and say, listen, history's important for these reasons and that's why they should stop doing what they're doing to the National Archives. I think that's um, it's admirable. I, I think the, the value of, of history
1: is, is overwhelmingly with the general public of finding a sense of roots and not just genealogy, but the history of local communities, uh, local activities our statistics show that the number of academic or professional researchers those who work for parks canada say who are paid to be historians was roughly around half and is now around i'll pull a figure out of the year 10% 12 14 8% much much less just and that doesn't mean there's fewer of them There may be actually more of them in absolute terms, but in relative terms, there's so many more members of the general public who are interested uh, in archives. The figures that come from Library and Archives Canada in defense of the digitization to make digital, the analog collection, is that there are roughly 20,000 physical researchers a year. There are a million web researchers a month. That's a number that speaks to politicians, and that's a number that says to politicians, in terms of serving Canadians, in terms of democratizing archives, in terms of allowing the average person access to their portion of the past, this is a great
0: success. The problem is what is being presented to the general public online, and how is it being presented? Should Library and Archives Canada have a pedagogical role? And the question is then who directs what they teach to the general public? Good good
1: questions. Political control of archives and bias built into archives. The power of the the digital image, you get people who respond very emotionally and write these powerful letters of having found their great uncle, his attestation papers for the first war, and, you know, writing Tearfield letters to the National Archivist, which, you know, gets passed on to the politicians. Again, a great success. So what gets digitized then?
0: You know, what is the agenda? Who decides the, the that arch- we should focus on the War of 1812, for example, versus um, something else
1: important? I don't know uh, if there was any special digitization done at LIC of War of 1812-related records. Certainly, they try to digitize those things which Canadians are most interested in. It used to be the old statistic that 95% of requests all went after the same 5% of the material. Uh, immigration landing records, uh, the census, World War One attestation papers, military files, in effect files about individual Canadians or about major themes in Canadian uh, history, uh, iconic photographs, uh, famous maps, and so on. That's not the academic researcher. The academic researcher is the people dealing with the other 95% trying to discover, you know, new general patterns in knowledge mm. as opposed to someone trying to find something local relating to their family or their, their locale. Library and Archives Canada has always had, going back to uh, its early role after 1872 and it created a sense of political direction being very attuned to what was popular with the tercentenary of Quebec in 1908 for Champlain's landing in 1608. Arthur Doughty, the Dominion archivist at the time, uh, was part of the committee that basically hijacked it and made it a celebration of the plains of Abraham in 1759 and Wolfe and Montcalm and how these two great generals both died in a noble cause. What else happened in 1908? It was the Entente cordiale between Britain and France who'd been enemies for centuries against the rising power of Germany. So very political. Agenda in the 1920s, uh, Arthur Doughty, during the First World War and after, was in charge of the war trophies of bringing back German guns and cars and distributing them to communities to put in their outside their town hall to memorialize the, the country. Hardly Victory. hardly yeah. a neutral and objective role. This is thumping patriotism and and war and a military agenda. In the 1970s, to take it from a more uh, left wing perspective, Pierre Trudeau, building on Jean Cartier's white paper as his minister of Indian Northern Affairs, gave the archives millions of dollars to go across the country, to find the Indian records that were laying in agents' offices, in barns and basements, find them, clean them, bring them to Ottawa, restore them, do a huge computer index, and then microfilm them all and give microfilm copies back to the relevant Indian bands that they are called then, First Nations, Provincial Archives, because you can't launch claims against the Crown for lost land or lost privileges unless you've got the record. And so that is very much a political agenda. Gave millions to the archives to create the National Ethnic Archives program in the 1970s. Why? Because you had bilingualism and biculturalism and there was the argument that, well, what about all the other ethnic groups outside English and French? So money to the archives to hire archivists with language capacity to collect the records of Japanese Canadians, Ukrainian Canadians, and so
0: on. What about then the argument that Money is being taken away from, quote, the objective presentation of history by parties in power to promote their own agenda. And the argument has been made that a big deal around the War of 1812 is softening up the public to support the expenditure of money on the F-35s. Could be. That argument's been made. That argument's been made. And then the argument, too, that you just wait for... (laughs) 1214 to celebrate the First World War and how that was the crucible within which Canada's identity and maturity was was formed. Yep, that's true. I mean we have this myth of ourselves
1: as a peaceful kingdom or peacekeepers, but in fact we've been a warlike nation. We have entered into lots of wars and son works at the Canadian War Museum, and so you know knows our military history very well. <laughs> but certainly whether that is softening up the public to support missions in Afghanistan or elsewhere in future or the purchase of military hardware like planes or New submarines, I gather, are, are needed. Or uh, it also allows uh, an interpretation of the past which is more martial, uh, more military-oriented. The changes in the immigration guide, the uh, study guide that immigrants study before they become citizens, they have to know about Canadian history. And then now there's more military history questions in there than there were before. But that suggests that in the earlier version of the guide which was liberal there were less military histories that just shows that there are what are called the history wars going on you know what history is the right history. Well, there is no objective history, and I would argue there's not much objective archives either. Most archives are staffed by white, middle-class, well-educated people, and those who aren't that have traditionally been underrepresented, so they create their own local and community archives, but that's not quite the same as being in the the provincial or the national archives. Now, it's perhaps unfair to many individuals, but as a generality, I think that can be demonstrated. So archives and history are politicized.
0: So I guess... It's impossible to separate the two.
1: I think what one has to do is to not deny our bias or our politicization, which is what archives have done. Our mantra has been, we're just curators. It's a favorite word. We're custodians. We are neutral and objective. We accept the record. We clean it. We describe it. And we make it available to researchers who can write left-wing, right-wing, feminist, sexist, whatever kind of history they want. Frankly, if you're seeing the whole and you're choosing one or two or three percent that you think is important, according to what criteria, and yet you deny that you're... And inflected. who elected you. That's right. And you then describe a collection of records that might have a million pages in a two-page finding aid entry. Well, what are you highlighting? What are you suppressing? There's a whole range of values there. There's a whole range of assumptions and methodologies that you know you say we're objective and neutral when we're not, it's actually... Power denied is power that's not accountable. And so a lot of us have been saying what we need to do is to make much more transparent. This is what we acquire and this is why and allow more public input, to have more participation. If you go on the finding aids of the archives and you find something wrong or you have additional information, add to it. Citizen participation. The the wiki experience. You you can see
0: Encyclopedia Britannica daily. Use your content. I mean, it may not be as, quote, accurate, but at least it gives you a variety of different viewpoints. I guess the other thing, too, is this whole discussion is important for democracy because you will be aware of what Laurier did and what Hart. Harper might be doing or his successors. They're taking money from the archives so that diminishes their capacity to present everything and clean yep. it yep. in an objective way. and Tackle the digital issues. Yeah, yeah, and they're using it very cleverly, using it for partisan purposes. You can't blame them for that. No. All politicians are going to do that. But what you can do is just make sure that people are aware that this is what's going on.
1: And there's a cost here. you know. And the cost is if you're going to do what I think is ethically responsible, and that is not ignore the digital revolution. This is the, the dark age scenario, then there's going to be a cost. And the cost is going to be poorer services, less persons devoted to dealing with the traditional analog archive. I think the question that we need to push for the general public is, why was Library and Archives Canada cut disproportionately? And the quick answer back is, you know, well, Harper's a barbarian and doesn't understand culture. Now look at the CBC. Quite the contrary, yeah, though. And, he and, understands and, it better than most. And I'm, I'm no apologist for the present government, but they didn't cut any of the National Museums. They didn't cut the National Gallery. The Film Board got a very slight trim. The Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council and the Canada Council from the traditional ideological viewpoint, eggheads to this kind of government were just modestly cut and I think archives are cut because they're not visible you know the museums attract 500,000 visitors a year or something in that category they have the huge shows on Van Gogh or, or the War of 1812 at the War Museum right now archives is the foundation of Canadian studies as Tom Simons called it in his 1975 report you don't have museums or galleries or historic sites without archives because the professional curators and in, in museums museums and galleries, the mm-hmm. historians at the store like, come to archives to learn the knowledge to interpret their thing but it's those big numbers that count.
0: It's sort of sadly ironic that here the archives are so essential for all the other organizations to present what they're presenting and get the big numbers and yet because they're under the radar, invisible as you say, they're the ones that are easiest to cut because the fewest people are going to kick up a stink. Yep, I think you put your finger right on it.
1: Sort of like plumbing. You know, no one wants to fix the plumbing in their house if they don't have to, unless it really blows up, because it's not... But you want to paint your living room or a new (laughs) piece of furniture. You know, you want to do the things that are showy, visible, and 500,000 people visiting a gallery show is very visible. Despite the fact that Van uh, Gogh has got nothing to do with Canada. Yes, but, you know, a lot of tourists come and they buy hotel rooms and they buy meals and it helps the economy. So how do we reposition archives to show that history really matters? And it matters to the curators of those other kinds of institutions. Uh, it matters to individual Canadians. And it matters to professional historians, and it's not professional historians who might sell two or five hundred copies of their books. It matters that those books are read by the Charlotte Greys and the Pierre Burtons who sell in the hundreds of thousands, and those books are read by the Mark Starwitzes who can create Canada People's History, which outdraws the Stanley Cup playoffs. Mr. Harper being a great fan of hockey,
0: so and a historian, <laughs> and a historian.
1: And so, how do you make that transition? I think you you do it by by showing the uses. Of of archives. My colleague Tom Naismith at the University of Manitoba is writing a lot about this. And archives are now being used for studies of genetic disease. They're used for Alzheimer's. You know, studying what mm. nuns who entered the convents at age 18 wrote, and then their life stories throughout, and the actual sentence structure and verb categorization at age 18 is a very accurate predictor of which ones would get Alzheimer's and which ones weren't. That's based on an archival record. Now, who would have thought of using an archive for medical research until recently? Mm-hmm. Climatic research. People can find that by looking at the ink on the page of the Hudson's Bay Company post. Because the ink would freeze overnight, they put the candle flame under the ink, dip it in to write their post, but the ink was very congealed. And the longer it took to decongeal and write a straight line, we show how deep the freezing had been the night before. So here we have global warming statistics going back to the 17 and 1600s. They used to measure the ice because they cut holes for swimming and just record it in the journals. So the ice thickness. Here's an incredible record, adding to 20 or 30 years of super satellite knowledge about our weather patterns in archives. The rights of Aboriginal people, First Nations people in this country, whether it's Indian residential schools or land that was shaved off their treaties or illegally logged, whether it's Japanese Canadians uh, in the Second World War, Al Memorial CIA experiments uh, on brainwashing in the 1950s, Chinese Canadian head tax, all those human rights cases are all addressed by archival records. and In fact, all those cases I just mentioned, by records in Library and Archives Canada. If we want our role internationally to be known as a proud defender of human rights, and therefore having more power at places like the United Nations, where we denied a place at the Security Council, these are uses of archives. So if archives are seen as a kind of plumbing, therefore not seen, or as far as they're seen well it's the purview of academic historians and so on then they're easier to cut because they are invisible. If they're seen as influencing All these new ways of knowing about our planet, about our health, about ourselves, about our identity as a nation, whether you want the 1812 identity or whether you want the multicultural Aboriginal identity of the left-wing politicians, Mm. it is our interpretation of the past. Whether we want to be known as a nation that respects and allows human rights abuses to be acknowledged, reconciled, Truth and Reconciliation Commission going on in Winnipeg now, creating an archival record. That's the value of archives. That's the value of history in in, in the broad sense. Researchers can help by emphasizing their corner of that big yeah. pie. Making it, t- it applicable to the lives of Canadians directly, like you've just done. It, it's really in the self-interest of, of government to have a citizenry, that identifies themselves as Canadian. That has a strong sense of identity, and there's lots of studies showing how you know archives and records are the font of community identity, whether it's small local communities on up to national communities. And it's it's who we think we are. Sometimes that's not very accurate. Sometimes we get a few rude jolts from the past.
0: Maybe this doesn't work in the Harper government's favor, but the argument that Stephen Harper made throughout the the last election was. Give me a majority so I can get something done in Ottawa. And I'm sure that resonated with, he was only elected with 30% of the popular vote, but put that aside. The fact is that minority government, Pearson's minority government, got more done than pretty well any other government in Canadian history. If more people had known that, maybe they would have called bullshit on that line of his. Could well be. Just using that example, if if more people had known about that, we've got a, a more educated, a more engaged citizenry. Mm-hmm. How do you connect that to, to library and archives? Well, certainly what we would know about the Pearson period would come from
1: those who have studied it. And there's biographies of Pearson, and of his government, and there's now popular histories. Probably when that... Kind of argument was made. People wouldn't go to the archives to search per se. They would go to those books, and people would then look up the footnote of the book and then go find the archival document if they wanted to really, you know, get into it. John Deefermaker actually said this, yeah, you know, yeah. to, to to throw it back. I, mean, I think Harper is doing things for culture. As I mentioned, there's money to the War Museum for the War of 1812. There's money for 1812 sites. You know, there's a support. When you're cutting most government departments from between 5 and 15%, and you don't cut the museums or the gallery, that's making a political statement. He is doing some things. It may not be the things that we agree with. The most troublesome part is that these kinds of agencies that employ professionals, whether it's archives or libraries or museums, where you're having professional archivists or professional historians, in the same way as Health Canada employs medical doctors to do drug research or Agriculture Canada has chemists to develop fertiliser, political interference in professional organizations as opposed to administrative ones which are issuing checks to the public or monitoring some kind of program is an area that's open for abuse. And that's why those agencies should be more arm's length or have some yes. kind of reporting to Parliament through some kind of ombudsman you know, rather than a, a line
0: department, perhaps. The, the only thing that the, the government can do then, really, if they don't want to really interfere, is to cut money. Yep. Cut yep. the money and take it and use it for their own purposes. Yep. Yeah, and ship their priorities. And so if these kinds of agencies and their
1: programs are, A, important to Canadians, and B, are arm's length and able to operate under professional guidelines, it doesn't make them a playground for the elite professionals to do whatever they want. As I came back to, we're not this kind of a neutral objective, know-it-all gods. We are professionals, we are well-educated, but we have a responsibility to be transparent and accountable ourselves, so we can be called up if we make wrong choices or controversial choices, or we have blinkers on, we're only human beings after all, to be more participatory. So if both the function is important and it's arm's length, so it can cannot be interfered with politically as easily, let's not be naive, yeah. it, it yeah. can be indirectly, there's all kinds of ways of putting pressure on, then that's an agenda that I think anyone interested in history and, and heritage should strongly lobby for with their, their MPs, uh, letters to the editor, uh, in their own association, and, and right now, I think. You know, the critical issue through the summer and the dog days of summer before they come back and they start thinking their next budget. I've been around this town long enough to know that sometimes programs get cut, and once they're cut, they can't be restored because everyone loses face. But they have a funny way of being resurrected with a new name in a new location. And we certainly hope some of the programs that were cut from LAC or by LAC can maybe show up again somewhere in, in the government of Canada. For example, the assistance programs to the archives across the country, yeah. which was uh, a real blow, and there was a internationally admired network. Uh, no other country has this network of, of archives. Uh, Britain's trying to put one in place, and the Americans say, how do you ever yeah. build this kind of a thing? That's a really penny-wise and pound-foolish cut, I think. It wasn't now, a huge amount of money. It was a- 1.7 million. Now, some of that money, the argument was, the LAC shouldn't be processing the backlog of local archives, but building this national infrastructure... I <laughs> which was matched dollar for dollar by local funds, allowed for the building of a national descriptive system. So the 800 archives in this country don't describe their things in 800 different ways, but actually by provincial standards and a national standard, which mm-hmm. this network built, so that you can actually go onto a site called Archives Canada and have access to all the archives in the country, and you see apples and apples and apples in each place rather than apples, oranges, and Oldsmobile bills <laughs> or something <Yeah. laughs> showing up. Well, plus it, uh, so, uh, it <coughs> reduced uh, duplication, I would
0: assume. Yep. That won't be restored. Just, just because, recognize political
1: reality. Yeah. No one's
0: backing down. That was that spite. I mean, what was it? That was just done. I, I don't know. When they cut that. Of course, they knew that was going to upset a lot of people. Why on earth would they do that? Well, I don't know
1: if they did know. You know, for that kind, of, for the amount of blowback there's been, I think they probably regret they didn't <laughs> okay. find something else. Okay. But of course, you you don't back down. Why did they cut it? I don't think it was malicious and deliberate in the sense that in this idea, archives are invisible.
0: Plumbing, you know, yeah. it's a tiny amount of it's money. It's a political and a big thing decision. That yes. what do we cut that'll make the fewest people scream? Was it even political, or was the like, Library
1: and Archivist of Canada said find nine million out of your hundred and ten million. Or was it dictated by the minister? Or with the minister approve it? We don't know. And, yeah, and you won't know until you get access to the cabinet documents. That's a minimum of twenty years. So <laughs> and no one will talk. You believe me. Okay. But the museum assistance program, which gives out money to Canadian museums. Is located in Canadian Heritage, so rather than have Library and Archives Canada administer a program to the archives mm-hmm. of the country, which kind has some semi-conflict of interest, Library and yeah. Archives Canada never took any money from the program in the 26 years itself, but they're administering it. So why not have the Stephen Harper Canadian Archives Assistance Program located in Canadian Heritage? You know, so you know if you don't burn too many bridges and don't call too many people, whatever you might think of them, yeah. and say okay. Where do we move on constructively from here? You know, we've we've had a season of of outrage and anger and and regret and and fully justifiable and understandable, but we need to ask why archives were cut when the others aren't, and how can we build a constructive engagement with this government? And that might not be that hard i'll just throw three things on the table for you okay. for small c conservatives as well as capital c conservatives the respect for history and heritage and culture is very much part of being a conservative you know it's re- the past plant your roots deep and the tree will grow big edmund burke all those kinds of good things it was the conservative government johnny mcdonald in 1872 created the archives five years after confederation Took the Americans 150 years from 1776 to 1934 when the National Archives were created in Washington. Although Louis Saint Laurent and uh, Robert Winters and C.D. Howe wanted to build the 395 Wellington Street building, they didn't quite have enough money in the recession. It was John Diefenbaker, approved in 61, and dug the hole. Now, Pearson got to to use it as Canada's gift to the nation in 1967, and it was Brian Maroney who approved the Gatineau Preservation Centre, which was a world-class building, second biggest building, in the hard times of the late 80s and early 90s, and indeed it was the only building that went forward under the program review. So, the Conservatives have a strong tradition of supporting archives, you know? Can we play to that? Or do we call them, you know, hopeless barbarians who don't understand archives? I think there's a bit of both, and depending on where one's politics would be, there can be an awful lot of one or the other. But I do believe that you try to find where the soft spots are and try to publicly engage. And so I think anyone listening to your fine series of, of podcasts and your site and stumbles on this one should uh, encourage the uh, capital C conservative government and the small c conservative-minded people in it, that history and heritage has long counted to their party, and that archives are important not as a kind of elite playground for a few academics, but to millions of Canadians, uh, judging from the use of the website, and that the archives is moving in the right direction of making digital as many of their collections as possible, but that they need to keep a core of expertise for their analog collections, that they need to recognize that putting things online isn't just a matter of throwing up digital surrogates, it needs real expertise to describe these so they actually can be found online, and that the archives in this country is a network. It's a network not unlike what the Conservatives did by founding the CBC or building the CPR.
0: You know, we unite our country, in this case, through history and memory. You don't see political parties interfering with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, so they cut the funding. Yeah, but and, you don't see them. Uh, maybe well, we are c- seeing them trying to set the agenda for the programming. But you certainly get uh, explicit uh, labeling
1: of pinko broadcasting and left wing bias from the capital C conservatives against the CBC. And that, in fact, was when they were out of power, and they're actually being consistent. Once you're in power, okay, you think you can do your pinko crypto NDP
0: agenda? Go ahead. But we'll cut you because we don't believe in it. Right. There's that. Yeah. But the, the archives should be seen by Canadians as just as important in terms of it being a an institution that shouldn't be interfered with politically. Just like the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, it shouldn't be crippled so that it has
1: to make choices that will significantly compromise our history. Mm-hmm. And that's where it is now. These cuts are crippling.
0: Mm-hmm. Final point, just getting back to the actual space, the display of the physical document. Yeah. What should we do? The space that we have is a disgrace. Yep. Yeah. Well, it was actually... Uh
1: quite a nice space when it was originally designed and had the original lighting and the windows open and so on and uh, I mean you, you don't want rooms bathed in light because that's not good for original documents. I can't remember the exact number, you could Google it, but anytime you go to the National Archives in Washington there's 20, 30, 40 yellow school buses out front and people come through to see the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the, the three or four foundational documents. I don't know if you've ever been there but you can't really see them. They're behind bulletproof glass. If there's any pressure or heat at all, if something fired, it drops down several floors, but you're in the presence of it. And if you get close enough, you know, they, they give you little handouts. You can sort of maybe make out Jefferson's signature or something, but you, in effect, can't read them. It's like the doctor who's got his degree in Latin on the wall and can't read it. But, you know, we, we have these kind of symbolic ceremonial archival documents. But what does it mean to those school children who are taken to their nation's capital, and no, it's probably not kids from California or Florida, but certainly from surrounding states, it's not just those who live in Washington, to trek to the capital, and they probably see museums and galleries, but they come to the archives to see the national treasures, and they're not seeing digital surrogates. They're handed paper surrogates as they walk out the door, but the original is there. Well, the paper surrogate fits on your eight and a half by 11 sheep, and in fact, this document is as It'd be as tall as your, your ceiling, and as wide as you know a dining room table one of them anyway so I think if one can't afford a rotating series of specialized exhibitions at the archives headquarters on Wellington Street to have a display of our foundational documents and to have a permanent exhibition on Canadian history with the sufficient records that that are original so that people can actually have that experience with the physical presence, um, as with the First Nations chiefs I mentioned, in the presence of of the treaty.
0: Not just history, but literature and science Uh, and geography. All all fields. Uh,
1: I would argue it's all history. But (laughs) But, But we don't have that. That's the extraordinary thing. Well, we had
0: it. We had it, but we don't have it.
1: That's right. We should have it. And I think we should. I applaud the move to build thematic exhibitions online. So there's now exhibitions on the First World War, on First Nations in Canada, on the immigrant experience, all kinds of wonderful things which a school teacher in Saskatchewan or Halifax could, you know, send their students to. There's hundreds, sometimes thousands of documents. Those themes are on a physical one. You're limited to about 200 to 220 documents, even in the huge exhibition space. So many more documents. People can, you know, study Canadian history through that, but there is some wow factor around the physicality of the originals or being in the presence of them. Our son, who works at the War Museum, uses some archival documents and displays their war diaries. And so for conservation reasons, they change the war diaries. And so people stop and they focus on this. You know, now they use originals too. Those aren't plastic reproductions of machine guns or helmets. <laughs> it's, it's, it's largely original. But the document really attracts people uh, because there is a realness to it someone created this in a certain time and place on a certain recording medium of certain types of pens and inks and that's kind of magical and I discussed before Ted Bishop's book on riding with Rilke as an English professor at the uh, University of Alberta I think when he he wrote it and an avid motorcyclist and as I was for for some time and you know when you lean into a corner and you realize you know slightly the wrong turn or an oil patch and it's life or death there's a kind of visceral excitement with the wind in your face, a uh, existentialist you, the machine, and, and the road. The only other time he had that feeling was when he opened the Virginia Woolf papers at some archives, at some Texas Harry university at, yeah, and saw Virginia Woolf's letter, and he was going through her letters and, and realized, and he said his hands started shaking, his mind went into a blur just like when he's in a curved trap in a corner when you've got the bike leaned over and you're right at that equilibrium point, if you lean it up too quickly, it'll crash, you lean it over too much it'll crash, you just find that sweet spot and it was her uh, final note to her husband before she committed suicide by walking in the river with the stones in her pocket. And he said he, his mind just went into a buzz and he couldn't read, he couldn't see straight, and just had to go out and get fresh air. That kind of dramatic, wow experience, which not everyone has all the time, every time you get an original archive document, but surely we should allow for its possibility. And that's what both access to originals, when necessary, for research, despite the preservation issues, and the huge advantage of allowing millions to see it in every corner of the country. There should be a space and that space should be in the capital where people can see those sort of talismans of our, our heritage our, both our most famous documents but it shouldn't just be the great and the good in a, in a national constitutional story but the story letters by immigrants you know photographs of people in slums uh, you know the, the soldier in the trench dying as opposed to the general in a strategic room you know all aspects of our, our history
0: and how we've faced uh, difficulties and, and overcome them yep. in the past yeah well and, and through that that kind of visibility, perhaps Library and Archives Canada wouldn't be so invisible and so wouldn't be so susceptible to these kind of cuts. Well done right, uh,
1: we may not get 500,000, but you may well get, you know, 100,000 or 150,000. How many people are downtown on July 1st? 250,000, you know? Why not have a special archives party, you know? Canada cakes out front and
0: invite them into such an exhibition. Well, Thanks so much for your time. Pleasure. I've been speaking to Terry Cook, who is a fellow of the Canadian American Archival Association. He worked at Public (laughs) Archives, then National Archives, now Library and Archives Canada, from 1975 till 1998 as an archivist uh, manager and executive manager. Thanks for all that you do and have done for Canada and Canadian history. Great. Well, thank you.